You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. How could the death of a Middle Eastern man 2,000 years ago still have significance today? How could that have anything to do with us? It's incredible that here we are on the other side of the world two millennia later and millions of his followers gather tonight to celebrate, remember, and reflect on his death as being significant to us personally and corporately. One of the reasons why it's significant to us 2,000 years later is because as Jesus taught and as the writers of the New Testament taught, that his death was a sacrificial one, that Jesus was sacrificing himself for us. Jesus died in our place for our sin as our substitute before God. I want to spend some time tonight continuing to reflect on this reality that Jesus is our sacrifice. This idea of a sacrificial substitute was something that God introduced to his people thousands of years before Jesus through the Old Testament sacrificial system. They had entire festivals and national holidays that were built around this idea of sacrifice, all rich with depth and symbolic meaning. Leviticus chapter 16 unpacks the most important day of the Jewish year. So they called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It became so central in Jewish life that it, it was eventually just referred to as the day, this Day of Atonement, this day called Yom Kippur. The setup for what we learn about this day in Leviticus chapter 16 is actually an event that happens in chapter 10. Aaron, who is the chief priest, actually has two sons who die because they approach God in the wrong way. And that sets us up for chapter 16 of Leviticus, your personal favorite book of the Bible. Here's what it says in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. I'll explain all that in just a second. Or else he will die. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And then the chapter goes in. Let me just explain the tabernacle really quickly. Before God's people entered the promised land, God instructed him, them to build something that was called a tabernacle. It was something like a giant tent. And this facility, this portable facility, was the epicenter of their faith. It was where religious rituals and gatherings took place. In the front, there was this altar. It looked a lot like a fire pit. Then the area that was covered with the tent-like structure had two separate rooms. It had what they called the holy place. And then beyond that, they had what they called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. 
And in that back space, that holy of holies, that most holy space, was the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, that's what stored, housed the tablet that the Ten Commandments were written on. I think we actually have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. We found it. That's it, you guys. That's uh, not it. That's Indiana Jones. That's a joke. But it is actually a, a reasonably good depiction of what the Ark would have looked like. It was this golden box. And on the top, it had what were called cherubim or uh, animal-looking angels that were there with wings that were covering over it. On the top of the ark was what was called the mercy seat. And it wasn't a chair, but it was the surface of the ark on which God's presence would rest. And these cherubim on the top, they, they stood like guards, barring entry into the presence of God as a direct correlation, if you remember, to the beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve sin against God and they're, they're pushed out of the Garden of Eden. And it says that two warrior angels are placed at the entrance of the garden, blocking the way as if to say, because of your sin, you cannot come in here. The Holy of Holies was a space that no one entered except for one person, one day per year. And that was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the main part, the front part of the tabernacle, was pretty busy. Priests would go several times every day, offering sacrifices, doing a bunch of religious rituals. But this Holy of Holies, where the Ark was, it was closed off by a veil. This veil was four inches thick. It was actually called a poroket, which literally means shut off. Because that's what this veil did. It shut off the presence of God from everyone, except for one person, one special day per year. And Leviticus chapter 16 gives us these details of the high priest's entry into the most holy place, this holy of holies. And I'll summarize based on chapter 16, as well as some Jewish tradition, all that would go in to this day of atonement. The process started a week beforehand. The high priest would be put into seclusion. He was taken away from his home, put in a place where he was completely alone. He didn't want to accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. He wanted to be pure for his entrance into the Holy of Holies. So clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, the priest would stay up all night praying and reading God's Word to to prepare his soul for for entrance into God's presence. Then on Yom Kippur, he would bathe meticulously, head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen, never before worn by anyone. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. And then he would come back out and he would take off all of his clothes and he would bathe again, all together, all over again. And he would put on new white linen and then he would go in again, this time offering sacrifices for the sins of the other priests. And he would come out a third time and he would bathe again and he would put on brand new white linens again. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies again and atone for the sins of all the people. Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard describes all of it this way. He says, This was all done in public. The temple was crowded, and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen, and he, the high priest, bathed behind it for modesty's sake, but the people were present for his every move. They saw him bathe, dress, go in, come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were cheering him on and making sure he did it right. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God and he was obtaining forgiveness from God. 
So why all this ceremony? Why, why all of these steps? Why all this concern with bathing and cleanliness? This is something that jumps out even as you read all the, the, the things in Scripture about Old Testament worship, the tabernacle worship. There's all these rules about who could go in and who could not go into worship. And a lot of them were, were physical. For example, there was a law that said you couldn't worship if you touched anything dead. You could go to worship later, but you had to be cleansed and purified. There were other laws that said you couldn't go into worship if you had any infectious skin diseases or rashes. You couldn't go into worship if you had had contact with mold or mildew or if you had any sort of bodily discharge. And of course, there were all these unclean foods. There was so much about ceremonial cleanliness. You had to be utterly clean. No dirt, no discharge, no infection, completely physically clean, or you couldn't go in to worship God. Why? God created dirt. So what's the issue? Before you leave your house in the morning, if you were to look down and you saw gunk smeared all over your shirt, what would you do? You'd take it off, change, put on a clean shirt, and then you would leave. Think about this a lot. I have a one-year-old who's near constantly discharging bodily fluids. Can <laughs> you imagine what would happen if you showed up to your office with various forms of bodily fluids smeared all over you, how your coworkers and your boss would react? Have you ever gone to shake someone's hand and their hand is wet? How do you react to that? Does it not make you want to? And then sometimes people will say, I, uh, I was just in the bathroom. And it's like, that's not better. <laughs> you're, not, you're not making it better. Uh, if you have a, uh, an important appointment, a first date or an interview, or you're meeting with someone and you need to make a, a sale, do you not inspect yourself and make sure you're dressed appropriately? You might even brush your teeth and throw in a mint, run over to a friend and <sighs> breathe in his face and say, am I okay, am I, am I good? What are, we, what are we doing with all of that? Why are we, why are we examining ourselves? Why, do we, why are we so aware that what's going on physically can have an impact on other people? The reality is that dirt and stench and body odor and infections are relationally repulsive. If you're talking to someone who looks or smells horrible, you might grin and bear it, but you are just waiting until you can get away and breathe properly. Do you see the symbolism here? That when we are sinful and self-centered, God is repulsed by that, the way that you and I are repulsed by physical uncleanness. It means that not only do we need to be reconciled to God, but God also has to be reconciled to us because we're unfit for the presence of a holy God. He's repulsed by our selfishness and our sin because of what he can see and what he can smell on us, spiritually speaking. These rules are not because there's something wrong with God. It's because there's something wrong with us. And these cleanliness commands are to get across the fact that the way that you and I are when it comes to physical uncleanness is how God is regarding spiritual and moral uncleanness. And all these steps and all this process is to symbolically communicate that there is a massive gulf between us and God, and we cannot just 
approach him as Aaron's sons found out that something has to be done about our uncleanness. And so watch what happens next in this day of atonement. Part of this ritual sacrifice was choosing two goats. And they would roll the dice and one goat would be offered as a sacrifice inside the Holy of Holies as a payment for sin. The other goat is described in verse 10 of chapter 16. It says, But the goat chosen by lot, or dice, as the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord. So they didn't kill this one. And it was to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And down in verse 21, it says that the chief priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away to the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. According to Jewish tradition, they would actually station someone right outside of the gate so that if the goat left the camp and wandered back into the city, they could actually make sure it didn't happen. Like You don't want to be sitting there around a campfire one night and that goat comes in and it's like, oh no, our sins are back. This is a bad, <laughs> this is a bad sign. And so people would be stationed outside of the gate, and when the goat left the camp and wandered into the wilderness, uh, Jewish tradition tells us they would actually lead it and just kind of push it off of a cliff to make sure it could never wander back. All right, so I want you to see now, with that in mind, what the book of Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 has to say about everything that I just described to you and the entire sacrificial system, including its pinnacle day, Yom Kippur, This is Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. It says, For a tent or tabernacle was prepared, the first section, that first first area, in which were a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. That would be that front area. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, that holy of holies. Only the high priest goes and he but once a year. That's the day of atonement in chapter 10. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This whole system, it was a symbol But it wasn't a reality. It wasn't enough. It didn't really make people clean. Their sin debt wasn't permanently paid. Their sins weren't actually removed from them. This system just reminded them of their need of a better sacrifice, a permanent sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. And so watch this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as our high priest... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is our high priest who represents us before God in his cleanliness 
but not simply an external cleanliness from bathing in new clothes, a cleanliness of character, a perfect sinlessness. And then chapter 10, verse 11 is such a mic drop moment. This says the priest never sits down. He stands daily because the work is always needing to be done. The work is never complete. But Jesus, our high priest, fulfills his duties and then he has a seat. Remember his last words from the cross. It is finished. And Jesus is also our sacrifice. The reason there were two goats was to illustrate two different things that God was doing with our sin. One goat was slaughtered for our sin, showing that our sin is paid for. It's a theological concept of justification. Justification means there's literally no more claim against us. If you get into a wreck and someone takes you to court and your insurance company pays the bill, then that person no longer has a claim against you because it's paid. That debt is paid for. The debt is settled. And the other goat, the one sent into the wilderness illustrates for us the concept of cleansing. Sometimes it's called expiation. God not only pays for our sins, he removes them from us. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. The prophet Micah says that God has put our sins at the bottom of the ocean floor. In Christ, both are accomplished. He's died to pay for our sins, and he takes our sins away from us. And you know, if you read through the last days of Jesus' life, it almost starts to look like Jesus is staging his own day of atonement, in a way. The parallels are everywhere. Just like the high priest, Jesus began to prepare a week beforehand. It's called Passion Week. The night before his sacrifice, Jesus stayed up all night in prayer. Jesus wasn't clothed in new garments like the Jewish high priest, and in fact, he was stripped of the only garment he had. And instead of being cheered on by the people like the priest was, Jesus was mocked and abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. Jesus wasn't bathed in a cleansing pool of water. He was bathed in human spit. When he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement, and instead the Father turned his face away. Jesus was struck dead even though he had no defilement in him. When he died, the curtain that separated us from God was a symbol of his perfect flesh torn so that we could enter the presence of God. And in fact, during the crucifixion, the curtain was literally torn in two. And for the first time in history, the way to God was wide open. When the disciples first come to find Jesus at the tomb, John actually mentions two angels in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus had been resting, almost an exact replica of these cherubim over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, as though they were recreating this mercy seat. But now Jesus' body was the mercy seat where his blood was sprinkled so that we could find forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 16 says that when Aaron was done with this atonement ceremony, he could then finally take off his linens. And you know what Peter and John found in the empty tomb? Wrapped up, folded linens because the atonement was completed. Jesus was the scapegoat who carried away our sins forever into his grave. Jesus went into the grave bearing our sin. Three days later, he came out of the grave, but our sins stayed there. And our sin is now as far as the east is from the west. It's hidden on the depths of the sea. It's kicked off a cliff. It's buried on the bottom of the ocean floor. It's done. It's gone. It's gone forever. 
Our sin is not merely covered over, it's gone. In Christ, God has no more claim against us because the debt has been paid. Jesus has done everything. There's no roles left for you to fill. There's no sacrifices for you to offer, no penance for you to complete. He accomplished everything that was needed for your salvation, and it is enough. What he has done is enough. It is enough for the liar, for the cheat, for the glutton, for the selfish, the proud, the self-righteous, the arrogant. It's enough for the porn star and the one watching. It's enough for the adulterer and the mistress. It's enough for the victim and the, and the abuser, for the oppressor and the marginalized. It's enough for the fudger of taxes and the swindler of millions. It's enough for the thief, the murderer, the doubter, the apathetic, the indifferent. It's enough for you. And your response is to receive it as the gift that it is. You have to make it yours. Don't spend your life's energy trying to earn what's already purchased. Here's how Hebrews 10 calls us to step into this beautiful reality that Jesus is our sacrifice. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." We now have confidence to commune directly with a perfectly holy God because Jesus is our sacrifice. So the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was this yearly reminder that their sacrifices were insufficient. But for us, Good Friday is a yearly reminder that Jesus' sacrifice is eternally sufficient because our high priest is sitting down with no more sacrifices to offer. What he did was enough. Let's pray.